Uh, let's pray as we turn to look to that. Father God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for the journey we've been able to go through in Hebrews as we've learnt more about the Lord Jesus and what he means for us and for life now. And we pray as we finish this journey today that you would really be not only speaking to our heads, that we understand what you're teaching us, but uh, we really absorb it in our hearts that we'd be changed by what you're teaching us so that we'd be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are at the end, uh, the end of the journey that we began back on the 2nd of May, a journey through a sermon that was written long ago, a journey through the biblical book of Hebrews, a journey with Jesus, the anchor for our souls. From the, from the, <coughs> sorry, from the very beginning, the author has been addressing a group of Jewish Christians who are facing two intersecting threats. One is a kind of complacency and drift back towards the old ways, and the other is a growing reality of suffering for their faith. And either way, they're in danger of not sticking with Jesus. So the author has constantly pointed them to Jesus as the anchor who can keep them, <coughs> sorry, keep them from drifting and hold them safe in difficult times. Jesus, God's last word, his son, the exact representation of God's being, the gentle and lowly one who delights in calling us brother, sister, uh, the pioneer and perfecter of our, our faith, who as our great high priest provided purification for sin and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Because of all that Jesus is for them, uh, the writer challenges his readers. He, he challenges them to not harden their hearts like Israel in the wilderness, to not be lazy but to grow up in the faith, to hold unswervingly to the hope they profess like the ancients who lived by faith and to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. That's been the journey we've been on and it's all been about a journey, uh, the great journey that we begin when we turn to Christ a pilgrimage that will not end until we reach the final destination, the better country that we read about in chapter 11, verse 6, the city which God has prepared for his people. Hebrews is about that pilgrimage. It's about keeping going to the end. It's written uh, to stop the recipients drifting, to stop them being blown off course by the storms that are rising, to keep them hanging on to the anchor for their souls. And now we've made it to the end, uh, the denouement, uh, as it's known in literary circles. Uh, you know, uh, that bit at the end of a novel or a movie uh, where the climax has been reached, you know, the crime's been solved, the, the couple have finally got together, the, the battle's been won, uh, and then there's this final scene where the strands of the plot are all drawn together, the loose ends are tied up, everything's resolved. Well, that's where we are today in Hebrews, the denouement. And there are a few strands to be tied up, but the big picture is to see the constant in our pilgrimage to God's eternal kingdom throughout all the hardships and trials of life, uh, to see that our God remains steady and true, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. And, and so Hebrews finishes with an encouragement to keep hanging on to God as we faithfully keep living for him. 
We're going to look at it in five parts, five reasons for five responses, five ways God sticks with us and five ways we should stick with him. God's love remains, so keep living for him. God's kingdom remains, so keep looking to him. God's help remains, so keep loving like him. God's son remains, so keep listening to him. And God's grace remains, so keep leaning on him. Let's look at it together so we can stick with the one who sticks with us to the end. The idea of pilgrimage was actually introduced with the stories of the great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11. And then as chapter 12 began, the focus switched to Jesus and it was clear that the journey would not be an easy one. For Jesus' journey to his exalted seat in heaven was through the cross of shame. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Clearly there was a danger that these people could grow weary and lose heart. And perhaps that's a danger for you right now. Now, whether it's the ongoing challenges of living with COVID or the struggles with, struggles with health, physical or mental, or finances or, or relationships, or copying an increasingly hard time for your convictions about Jesus, you may feel battered and almost ready to give up. Well, if so, this is definitely a message for you. As the writer exhorts us to keep living for God because God's love remains even through hardship. Uh, His readers have suffered for their faith already. We read in chapter 10 about them having their property confiscated. But a greater test for their faith may still await them. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Harder times than they have yet experienced may come upon them. So the preacher points them to a word of encouragement from Scripture. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. My son, do not make light the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as his son. This is the secret of enduring hardship to recognise it as discipline, God's hand of teaching and correction, because discipline is a sign of love, isn't it? I'm, I'm a father, you know, and when I disciplined my children, it was because I loved them, uh, because I wanted them to know what was right and wrong, because I wanted them to, to learn important lessons. If I hadn't disciplined them, that wouldn't be a sign of love, that would be a sign that I didn't care. Of course, human parenting is faulty, Uh, Disciplinary action often comes from anger rather than love. It's sometimes applied unfairly or without mercy. Indeed, there may be some here today who who find this whole illustration uncomfortable because you had an abusive father whose discipline was harsh and cruel. But God's not like that. Uh, The second half of verse 10 says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. His discipline is perfect in justice and mercy. He's the very opposite of an abusive father. And if you have known an abusive human parent, then please know that God, in God you have a perfect, loving, heavenly father. But the thing is with discipline, we never welcome it. No child ever delighted in being sent to their room or grounded for a week or losing privileges... But if discipline is applied appropriately, it will bear good fruit as the child grows in understanding 
as they learn self-discipline and, and, and live as God intended. When, when we experience hardship on our journey in life, it's easy to draw the conclusion that God doesn't love us. We ask, why does God let this happen to me? But if we recognise it as his hand of loving discipline, we can ask instead, what's God teaching me through this? The thing is, when life gets tough, we can so easily go in other directions than where God would lead us. Verses 14 to 17 address some of the unhelpful ways we might look, some of the lessons God may be seeking us to learn in our trials. Under pressure, first of all, we might strike out, get angry and look for a fight. But God, our loving Father, calls us to peace in verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Or when things go wrong, we might compromise our standards, mindlessly walk away from the holiness that God has called us to. But verse 14 continues, and to be holy, without holiness no one will see the Lord. God created us to be his holy people. God washed, Jesus washed us in his own blood to make us holy. The Holy Spirit works in us that we will grow in holiness and trials are one way that God forges holiness in us. Another response to hard times could be to get bitter and twisted, to hold grudges and be eaten away by bitterness. See verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. For when we look to God's forgiving grace towards us, well, that bitterness dissolves. Perhaps that trial has come so that you might grow in grace. And too often when people feel the heat, they don't just get out of the kitchen. They go straight to the bedroom or at least to the computer where they can log on to the porn site and lose themselves in lust. So verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral. Sexual immorality is not the answer to our problems. Recognising the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father is. I wonder which of those unhelpful ways you, to, you turn to when things are tough. What is God teaching you in hardship? Because all of those other responses are a bit like red stew. Uh, you remember the story of Esau and Jacob in, in Genesis 25? Esau came back from hunting, hungry, and he wanted a quick fix for his hunger. And his brother Jacob was ready to capitalise on it. He offered Esau the red stew that he was cooking in exchange for Esau's birthright as the firstborn, which was the, the promise of God to Abraham for much future blessing. And, 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 and he gave it up for red stew. When we respond to hard times by angrily striking out, acting in unholy ways, letting bitterness settle in our hearts or running to the porn site, it's like we are selling our birthright as God's children rather than responding to our Father's loving discipline. But if we endure hardship as discipline, seeking to grow in Christ through difficult times, then rather than be weakened before our pilgrimage of faith, our feeble arms and weak knees will be strengthened. God's love remains, so keep living for him. And let me tell you, it's so much worth lasting the distance. In verses 18 to 22, we're given a glimpse of our destination, the heavenly city of God's kingdom. 
the destination of the Christian pilgrimage is contrasted with the destination of, uh, initial destination for Israel when they left Egypt uh, to Mount Sinai. Uh, we can read about that in Exodus 19 and 20. Mount Sinai was the tangible, touchable reality of God's holy presence, covered with fire and darkness, gloom and storm. And, and there the people heard God speak and trembled with fear, begging to hear no more. Such was the, their encounter with the holy God. The destination for the Christian pilgrimage is just as real, but it's not a present reality that we can see and touch right now. It is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem that will one day come out of heaven from God and be as he establishes the new heavens and the new earth. Rather than marked with fear, joy abounds in Mount Zion with myriad of angels joyfully singing God's praise along with the chosen people of God of all ages whose, whose righteous spirits have been perfected by Christ. In their midst is God, the judge of the universe, and with him is Jesus, the reason this gathering is not trembling in fear, for they are covered by the sprinkled blood of Jesus, blood that does not cry out vengeance like the blood of Abel, but cries forgiveness, freedom, salvation. That, folks, is where we're heading. Indeed, by faith in Christ, there's a sense in which we are already there. The verse says, you have come to Mount Zion. It's just as real, no, even more real than Mount Sinai. And as we gather each week as God's people, we get a little taste of it. Joy in the presence of Jesus, the people of God living for him. And one day it will be perfected forever and it cannot be shaken. Mount Sinai shook. All the material realities of this world will shake and fall, but not the kingdom of God. It remains. And the question that poses for each of us is, what is real? It's so easy to, to, to limit our sights to what we can see and hear and touch and taste, to the struggles and temptations of this present world. But our destination offers us so much more, the very presence of the living God. You know, the people of Israel soon turned their backs on the fearsome reality of Sinai as they cast their idol of gold. They didn't escape judgment for their rebellion. How much less will we if we ignore the wonderful spiritual, spiritual reality that we've been given? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So whenever you feel the brokenness of this world, and attempted to get angry or bitter or lustful or, or in any other way abandon the holiness to which you were called. Remember that one day the fire of God will consume this present world and replace it with a new perfect world, his kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that's our destination. And you know, while it mightn't be happening lately, I'm sure that most of you have endured a long-haul flight at some time. Uh, and if, like me, you're stuck in cattle class with little leg room, you know that it can be pretty uncomfortable uh, and it certainly takes great expertise and possibly some tablets to get any sleep. Uh, what we need to do... Well, uh, sorry, I remember when Karen and I flew to London, 
uh, we weren't even, even able to get seats together. So we had to sit apart and not even be able to talk to each other through the misery. But what we needed to do was to keep our eyes on the destination, to know that the discomfort wouldn't last, to endure the present suffering for the goal ahead. And that's what these verses are urging us to do, to remember that God's kingdom remains, so keep looking to him. Unless some, some, someone says, well, so it's all pie in the sky when you die then, something that we can look forward to, but nothing for my life now as I struggle with this or that. Well, as we enter the final chapters of Hebrews, the final chapter, we're reminded that it's not all future. Right throughout Hebrews, God has been ever-present. And so he is as the book draws to a close. See down in verse 5. See the quote from Joshua 1.5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. When God spoke those words to Joshua, God was promising to stand by his people when they were about to enter the promised land. And he makes that same promise to us as we look to enter the kingdom. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God, God looks after us in the here and now. We can be sure of that. Even if suffering is our present reality. Even if we're persecuted for our faith or don't have enough money or can't find a marriage partner or feel unloved and undervalued, we can be sure of God's presence. We can say with the writer of Psalm 118, quoted here in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? God will stick by us through thick and thin. That's the promise. He's with us on the journey to his city. His help remains. And that being the case, he urges us to be in it together. Fellow pilgrims, living the new commandment of Jesus, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So chapter 13 here begins, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters God keeps loving us. His help remains. So love like him. What's that look like? Well, the writer actually points out four ways to love like God. First of all, loving God like God means showing hospitality, being generous towards others, even those you don't know, taking care of them, welcoming them into your life. When Abraham welcomed strangers in Genesis 18, They turned out to be angels. Maybe the strangers we welcome will be angels too. The new family in the neighbourhood that you invite home to lunch. The elderly lady next door whose lawn you mow. The homeless man you stop to talk to on your way to work. Next, loving like God means standing with those imprisoned for their faith. Identifying with those being mistreated for owning the name of Christ. You know, there are more Christians being persecuted today than ever before. I hope that you've been praying for them in your home groups as you've worked through your way through these studies in Hebrews and each week there's been a different country to pray for. Third, loving like God means upholding marriage. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. And whether you're married or not, you should seek to honour marriage and keep sex within the bonds of marriage. 
the faithful lifelong union of a man and a woman shows the world the commitment of God to his people. And, and, and it is being undermined and attacked in so many ways. As we love like God, we will need to uphold and protect marriage. Lastly, loving like God means keeping our lives free from the love of money, being content with what we have. And we're, after all, we're pilgrims. We need to travel light. You know, when Karen and I took that plane trip to, to London, we only had a bag each. You know, we had to travel light. And so it is with our journey to the city of God. We're so easily distracted away from a life of love by this broken world, aren't we? By the lure of material possessions, by the temptation to pervert love to sex, by the easy life that ignores those who are doing it tough, by the selfishness that turns away from the needy strangers. But God is with us in it. He is our constant help. He'll stick by us through thick and thin. He's with us on this journey to his city. God's help remains, so keep loving like him. And one of the helps that God gives his pilgrims is leadership. And verses 7 to 19 focus on leadership, most centrally the leadership of the Lord Jesus. He's our leader, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, on whom we should fix our eyes. Hebrews 13 verse 8 is pivotal. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We can rely on Jesus, our great high priest. He remains faithful and true, gentle and lowly, the same as he ever was and ever will be. The large central section of Hebrews showed how his death had replaced the sacrifices of the Old Testament and, and, and acted towards us to save us. And we're reminded of it here in verses 11 to 15. The old high priest would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice in the most holy place, but they would then take the carcass of the sacrificed animal outside the camp to be burnt. And so it says Jesus suffered outside the city gate like those unwanted carcasses to make the people holy through his own blood. In that way, Jesus leads in suffering for the faith. The pilgrims who are looking for the city that is to come should follow his lead, bearing disgrace for his name because that's what he did yesterday and he's the same today and he'll always be the same. But wrapped around those pivotal words about Jesus' leadership, the focus is on the, his under-shepherds, on leaders like Dave and Karen and the elders and home group leaders and DY leaders and kids' church leaders and anyone in any sort of leadership position in the church. First, in verse 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then in, in, later in 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. These words urge me and anyone else in a position of church leadership to be faithful in speaking the word of God uh, and to live exemplary lives with a faith worth imitating and to keep watch over those that we lead, remembering that we'll need to give an account. There's much here 
to challenge me and any one of you who are in leadership position, especially in the contrast uh, set up in verses 9 and 10 with the false teachers who are abandoning the grace of God for ceremonial foods and sacrifice. But the primary call here is to followers, to all of us, that is, as we look to those who lead. It is a call to respect our leaders, recognising them as Christ's ambassadors, to look after them so that their work is a joy and not a burden. Now, that, that means giving enough money for the ministry of the church, and Dave started to address that uh, this morning with the, the future in mind. Uh, it, and it means um, taking care of leaders in every way you can. It, it most importantly includes praying for those in leadership, which verse 18 makes explicit as the writer asks for prayer. It's a call to listen to our leaders when they bring us God's word. Now, we need to be discerning and check things out with the scriptures, not be carried away by teachings that are odds with God's word. But when our leaders speak the truth, the command of verse 17 is stark. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. And thirdly, it's a call to follow our leaders, to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, those of us in leadership should be able to say, as Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. We need to be able to look to them as examples. Our Lord Jesus remains constant and he gives us leaders in the church. The call is to listen to God as he speaks to us by the word and example of godly leaders. So as verse 15 and 16 put it, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That's how Jesus leads us, and he remains. So keep listening to him. But the final word of this sermon, the final words are not words of instruction, they're words of grace, a benediction that recognises that it's all of God. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we've just been reminded of our great high priest whose blood makes us holy. And now we're reminded again, the eternal covenant is written in his blood he is the one who has conquered death and he is the great shepherd who will guide his sheep home, who will equip them for what they need for the journey, who will enable them to do God's will, who will work in them what pleases God. It's all by grace. It's all for his glory from first to last. That's how the, the sermon began. That's how it ends. God's grace remains. And having finished his written sermon, the pastor then adds a few personal notes, finishing with a final word of grace. Grace be with you all. That's what we depend on. This is the anchor that we have to keep on, keep us from drifting or being blown off course. Not our performance, but the grace of God in Christ. God's grace remains. So keep leaning on him. And so here we are at the end of the letter. Here we, and here we have what we need to make it to the end. 
through whatever this broken world throws at us, all based on the fact that God is constant and holds out for us an unchanging kingdom brought to us by his unchanging son who will stick with us to the end. That's the anchor that we need for our soul. So keep on keeping on. Stick with him to the end. God's love remains. So keep living for him. God's kingdom remains. So keep looking to him. God's help remains. So keep listening to him. (coughs) God's grace remains. So keep leaning on him. As Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. Let's pray. Our Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have such confidence in all that you are for us in the Lord Jesus. We We can have such confidence that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That the same Jesus who laid down his life for us and rose victorious from the tomb is the same Jesus who is now interceding for us in the heavenly places. And the same Jesus who will one day return and bring in the new heavens and the new earth where we can live in, in, in eternal fellowship around your throne of grace. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful truth, but we confess how easily we forget it. It's not in our minds, in our practice. We forget, we so easily forget when we're, when we're pressured or just when we're doing it easy. Lord, we pray that you'd constantly bring us back to the wonderful truth of the Lord Jesus and all that he is for us. Lord, we need that anchor for our souls. Help us to hold on to it for all our lives so that we might bring you all the glory as we depend on your grace and live for your holiness in all our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.